0: Put the quarter in Patrick. Oh, thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Hi, everybody. We're in Revelation chapter 17, part two. It's March 4th. It stopped snowing. Utah is safe again. Hallelujah. Patrick is back with us. And uh, let's begin with the word of prayer. And then we'll uh, sing one song of the word set to music and then come back after some silence and finish chapter 17 of Revelation. Lord, we uh, pause, uh, thank you, we love you and seek you, need you, and uh, want to have your guidance in our lives, your guidance and not the guidance of this world, not the guidance of men. We uh, gather together here in house and then at home and in the archives to understand you and uh, to know you, for to know you is life eternal and your only begotten son. So we just pray that you'll Help us to understand this complicated, complex book and all the nuances that come with it. And it might be a fortification to our uh, walk and not a detriment. And that we won't make uh, big mountains out of uh, religious uh, molehills. We'll just realize it's part of what we've got and uh, grow in faith and move on. So we just pray you'll be with us now as we consider your word set to music. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a few of you guys with us that haven't been here before through a revelation, and I just want to start off by saying I'm so sorry. I, I just apologize to you in advance. It, it, you know, uh, another thing that's on my mind, I just quickly, we don't do this typically in meat, but um, uh, life is really interesting. when you're, It's interesting no matter what you're doing, but in ministry you get the blessings of seeing things. Uh, through a kind of a bigger perspective. You get to live life a little bit of a bigger perspective through other people. And uh, this past week, and and, um, there's a guy that I have known for years and uh, he's battled depression for years and he took his own life. Uh, He's in in ministry to the LDS and uh, his name's Andy Poland. He has five children. Uh, he's been battling depression, uh, and uh, talked with him a number of times. There's nothing that anybody could really say or do, so you have that that side of life. I mean, it happens in this existence. I don't judge Andy at all. We pray for him and his family, and 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 uh, just just hope the best. And at the same time, there's another couple that uh, we know uh, as a physician from. Uh, back east, and he and his wife came out, and he's been for years looking for Christ. He came out of Mormonism and trying to understand Jesus, and, and, um, and then last night, we got to go and meet them, uh, this couple, and he gave his life to the Lord, and uh, more fervently, completely openly, and he decided to be baptized in a Deer Valley swimming pool. Uh, that's outdoors. So all around are people in these lush robes holding wine and cheese. And here I am tatted, standing in a swimming pool and he is just openly saying, you know, this is the Lord, I am so proud to uh, receive him. I'm so grateful for him and I'm gonna follow him with my whole life. What a a wonderful experience to see and uh, participate in that. And then to come in here and to see you guys, and and to see all of you is wonderful, but to see uh, Parrish and Lisa come in, haven't seen them in a while, Lisa's been ill, and to hear uh, how a husband is taking care of his wife, and she has a new hairdo that he straightens and curls, he tries to cook for her, and she says it's horrible, Uh, but he cares for a wife he loves, and she is facing um, terminal cancer with bravery these cycles of life, you know, I have an opportunity to be able to step in and see them firsthand. And uh, you guys, you guys amaze me. God amazes me through everything that's going on. And so when we get into Revelation and it becomes, just, just remember, there's a lot more to life than, than understanding what this book is saying. All right. We left off at verse 6. John says, And I saw the woman, drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. We didn't cover this last line, but what on earth could that mean? John says he looks at a woman who is the whore of Babylon, sitting on the back of a red beast with ten horns and... He says, and, and, and she's drunken with the blood of the saints and with the martyrs of Jesus. And, she's, and John says, he looked on her, the King James says, with great admiration. You know, and in our language, that is, that is like, hey, wow, what a great thing. But that's not a really good translation. Perhaps it's better translated, I marveled with amazement at what I saw. Now, remember John was witnessing... This woman who had drunk the blood of the saints, she is representative of uh, the house of Israel at this time who had rejected their Messiah and had persecuted Christians. That's who this whore of Babylon, I am suggesting, that's what she represents. And she, as a bad woman, has pursued evilly after the bride of Christ, who is the Christian believers at that time. The bride of Christ has been trying to escape persecution from the Romans and the Jews who hate Christians. Those Jews of Israel represent the whore of Babylon sitting on the beast, which represents Rome. Together, John sees them, and she's drunk with the blood of the Christians that have been put to death. Million plus, I mean, it seems like millions of Christians have been put to death. It may not be that much at this point in time. So we're we're talking about John, who's a Jew, who has received the Messiah. He knows Jesus. He's an apostle. But he's looking upon a representation of his fallen brethren who haven't received the Messiah and who get drunk on the blood of his Christian brothers and sisters. And so he is marveling with amazement. Also words we don't use in the negative, but this is a negative thing. I was, I was stunned at what I saw. So let's read our text for today which is the rest of the chapter, starting at verse 7, And the angel said to me, Wherefore did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou saw was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And that, excuse me, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. There's that phraseology to describe the beast. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh and goes into perdition. We're talking about very confusing language just out of the English. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords, and kings of king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sit sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, and the horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. And God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Okay, so go back with me. I'm already sweating because of this text. We studied the first six verses of this chapter where we considered that the identity of the great whore, which it says here in verse 18, is also the great city, which we'll talk about, uh, as the whore of Babylon, Babylon the great, and we saw numerous reasons for believing that this was in fact first century Jerusalem, its inhabitants, uh, the old covenant temple-based form of Judaism, that's what she represents. She's sitting on seven mountains. We'll talk about that. We are also introduced, as we were in chapter 13, to this beast that has seven horns, seven heads, excuse me, and ten horns. And in the second time in Revelation, in this chapter, we're going to see how the angel unveils to John the meaning of both. So... This is what we read at verse 7. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore did you marvel, John? You're looking at this, and you're marveling. You're wondering. You're amazed, but with questions. I will tell thee the mystery of the woman. I'm going to tell you who she is. And of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The angel now begins describing the beast uh, that the whore rides upon. Remember, last week we established two women in Scripture. We go all the way back to Abraham, who has a wife, Sarah. She can't conceive. She's promised to have a child, so she says, take Hagar. And then we read where Paul said, listen, I'm going to borrow from that example. Sarah is the promised one. She brings forth children of the Spirit, the promised child, uh, Isaac. But Hagar is of the flesh, And she brought forth not the promised child, and the flesh wars against the Spirit. Two women warring against each other, and ultimately what was cast out, the flesh, Hagar, with her son Ishmael, is cast out. But remember, God made them a great nation. He told Hagar, I will make him a great nation, even though he was cast out. But Paul uses those two women as a symbol, as pictures, as types, where we have a woman of the Spirit. Those are those who have come to know Christ, uh, that is the bride of Christ who is on the earth at this time. And we have the great whore, the, uh, the, uh, Babylon the Great. And that is all the Jews who have pursued after their own ways. They have discarded Christ and his, as the Messiah. And so she, the whore, pursues after the bride and tries to make her life miserable by putting uh, the saints together. Uh, so we have those two in scripture, as Paul points out in the persons of hagar and sarah all the way back so here we are told that the beast bears the woman she's on the back of this red beast and we pointed out that red was important for a number of reasons one being that nero who represents rome and that rome's color is red and nero had a red beard and all of that stuff the beast is red we call in our study of revelation 13 a while ago We took note that the beast of the sea is spoken of as an individual. The beast that came out of the sea, he's spoken of in Revelation as an individual, Nero, and he's also spoken of as a uh, general uh, uh, entity, which is Rome itself. Nero is the uh, metonym of, uh, Nero is the metonym of Rome. Nero represents all of Rome, and Rome is represented by Nero, okay? So this is the beast upon whom the whore, the fallen, corrupt, Christian-hating Israel is sitting upon. John continues at verse eight, saying, "The beast that sawest was excuse me, the beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit." So we have, again, this idea where this beast, which is Nero, was, is not and then comes back to life out of the bottomless pit. Specifically, we see that happen to Nero in his life, and generally we see that happen to Rome, and we've talked all about that. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, that they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And we've talked about how those they looked upon Rome, and they were wondering, how is how is Rome, how is Nero able to do what he's doing? And we talked all about the secular history of Suetonius and Josephus and uh, Dio Cassius, who all wrote about how Rome looked like she was dead, and how she came back to life, and how Nero killed himself. And then there were people saying that he was actually still alive. How is this happening? this is what verse eight says: the people wonder. How how they look, whose names aren't written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they're wondering. How is Rome coming back into power? That's what I would say it's saying. The angel tells John that all the dwellers on earth, and remember, earth is Israel in the book of Revelation. Sea is the Gentile nations. Earth is always Israel. All the dwellers on earth whose names were not written in the book of life would marvel to see the beast that was and is not and is to come. Again, that is what the Jews were seeing. They thought, is, they thought Rome is done for. And then they saw it come back to life. We talked about that. We also described this beast. Um, there's a clear parallel in, here in Revelation. And to Revelation 13, uh, verses 3 and 4, which states, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And we know that it's not the whole cosmos. It's the whole Gehe or the whole Oikomenia. The whole area marveled at this beast which seemed to have been alive and then wasn't and then came back alive again. All right. Uh, The angel then says to John at verse 9, and here is the mind which has wisdom. Okay? Here is how to understand what we're talking about. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings five are fallen and one is the other is not yet come and when he comes he must continue a short space now if this was written after 70 a.d as most christians believe then what he is saying here has to fit a different model than what i'm going to suggest But if the revelation was written before 70 AD, then what he is talking about here fits perfectly, perfectly with a descriptor secular history of Rome and their emperors or kaisers. Steve Gregg, a full preterist, says the following. The principal concern in verses 7 through 11 has to do with the meaning of the seven heads of the beast as mountains and kings. What are they talking about? David S. Clark wrote, we had the beast located geographically on the seven hills, which meant Rome. Uh, So, I don't think it's to say we have the beast located geographically on the seven hills, which meant Rome. I think we should say we have the whore located geographically on the uh, seven hills. But, now we have located in history, now we have him located in history to tell us what period of Rome we are dealing with. And there is no period of Rome's history that will fit this description but the dynasty of the Kaisers. It is a perfect fit, as we mentioned when we studied uh, chapter 13 and how this has come out, where there will be this person and that person, and one is and one isn't, and, 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 and so we'll talk about that in a second. So in Revelation 13, we looked ahead to this very passage. That's in chapter 17. When we were studying 13, we looked ahead. And we concluded that there should be no doubt that this is speaking of Rome and that even futurist scholars, people who believe Jesus is still coming out in the future, concede this point. They agree on this point that um, this is Rome. These are the seven mountains, seven hills that Rome is built upon. And that uh, even though they anticipate the uh, revival of the Roman Empire at some later date. So additionally, we also remember that there's that coin of Vespasian, and that coin has seven mountains uh, uh, inscribed upon it. He was in power from 69 to 79 AD, which has been discovered by archaeologists, and it pictures the goddess Roma as a woman seated on the seven hills. Not to mention that Rome, which is the capital of the Roman Empire, is the one city in history famous for its seven mountains, And finally, first century Rome used to celebrate a feast we mentioned before called Septimonium, which is a feast of the seven-hilled city. So when John sees in Revelation, the whore representing all of Israel, sitting on this beast or on the seven hills, we're talking about a relationship between Rome and its power and Jerusalem and its ways. Okay, also on verse 10, Uh, And the seven kings, the passage says, they, the seven heads, are also seven kings. Hold on. Five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, if John wrote this before 70 AD, again, we have a perfect picture. And I've described those kaisers here on the board. So look with me. We'll go to the board to talk about them. We covered it at length as the seven kings line up with the historical data showing that the emperors who reigned in the, Mor- uh, in the Mormon Empire, in the Roman Empire, up to the destruction of the temple. Okay, so remember, just look at it because we're back at it again. There's recapitulation in the book of Revelation. It's recapitulating. We have the first Kaiser, Julius Caesar, When did he reign? uh, 49 B.C. to 44 B.C., and he is known as the Perpetual Dictator. He established it, alright? Then we have Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, we have Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. Notice that these all reigned at the same time. Oh, sorry. They all reigned at the same, started in 69. Why did that happen? Because Rome was in that decline when it, they thought, we're going to fall apart. We can't survive. The Roman Empire, which was and is not is, and then came back, this is what we're talking about. So, and then we've also, without question, even with the number 666, proven, proven that the uh, beast that is described in Revelation, and John says, listen, Figure out the number, and you'll know his identity is big old Nero. And we've read quotes about how he was and perhaps one of the most horrific human beings to ever walk the face of the earth. And he was the one threatening the Christian church. 54 to 68, he died by suicide. Here's how they all uh, either died or where their place was in history. At Jesus' birth, we had Augustus. So it says where there's five... Five that were, one, two, three, four, five that were, one that now is, that's Nero, and one to come who will reign but a short time, be a short time. And we can see that Galba, he actually, this is, uh, this is misleading, he actually only led for six months. So that perfectly fits the kings and uh, their reign there over uh, the beast uh, at that time. So... To me, this data alone uh, proves, in the least, that we have the greatest fulfillment of revelation—fulfillment of revelation up through chapters ni- 19. That well, t- I'm not even going uh, 20, 21, and 22. We haven't gotten there. But if we want to see fulfillment, I would say we have talked and proven up to this point, all the way up to even signs like this. Of fulfillment up through this point in time now we know that the marriage of the bride uh, is going to come in chapters 20 21 and 22 and that will be the end of everything we'll see if that's fulfilled but I at least am a committed partial preterist committed at this point in our study open to changing and becoming and and remaining a partial preterist once we get to our chapters 20 21 and 22 but thus far we have looked through the data We have looked at every verse. We have looked at secular history. We have used the Bible to interpret what Revelation says. And without question, in my estimation, nobody can say these things have not happened. Now, the historicist view of Revelation can say it's going to happen again and again and again and again. It just keeps recurring with us. That may be true. Uh, I, I don't know about that, but I can tell you for sure those things did happen as Jesus said they would and as the apostles taught they would. So, uh, looking to the board, some historians don't consider Julius Caesar as one of the, uh, as one of the emperors. But uh, uh, Josephus uh, did consider him. And in his own writings, in his uh, book, of Antiquities of the Jews, books 18 and 19, he uses this listing of the emperors, and that's where it comes from. And so Josephus himself, which will play right into our brother Jason's theory, uh, he says, no, there were these, and that's why they fit how Revelation describes them. Additionally, there are numerous Roman historians who were contemporaries of Josephus who agree with his order of the kaisers, of the emperors. And like I said, Cassius and Suetonius, who wrote Lives of the Twelve Caesars, uh, is one of them. Okay, uh, Julius Caesar was appointed as the perpetual dictator in 42 BC, so uh, his inclusion in this list would not be, seem so strange. He's the one who kind of kickstarted it. And according to, the, about, to this list, Nero was the king of whom John said one is. He is now reigning, and Galba was the one who is not yet to come. And because he only reigned six months, he remained only a little while. Also, uh, just to say, John uses the term kings here instead of emperors. And you might say, if they were really emperors, if they were really kaisers, then John would have used the term for king, which is derived from Basilia. But um, there's no problem with this. Tiberius, uh, who's up here, he's number three, he is referred to in John 19, 15 as a king. That's how he is described in John's writings there. And Claudius, who is number five, is referred to a king in Acts 17:7. 7. So just because king is used does not mean they weren't the emperors, and that's not what was meant. I, and I'm, what I'm doing is I'm telling you the little things people kick back on. Well, they're called, not called emperors here or kaisers. They're called kings, but Scripture shows that they were called kings in other places. We also note that the chart on the board indicates more Roman emperors than are referenced by John. He says five are, one is, and one shall reign a short while. That's only seven. So how come we have ten here listed in the course of, those, uh, of these histories? Kenneth Gentry, he says, why only seven kings? Because this covers the ground which John the writer means specifically to discuss. It goes down to the period when the persecution then raging would cease. And that's why only those are mentioned. That's his explanation, you may have a different one. I'm just borrowing from his because I thought it was the best. We know the uh, imperial persecution initiated by Rero, Rero, temporarily ceased with his death in 68 AD. So again, Just to to remind you, Nero kills himself after doing unspeakable things to hundreds of thousands of Christians. He kills himself, and the whole country thought this is the end of the Kaiser reigns. This is where it ceased to be. And then suddenly, after that, we had that short reign of Galba, and then it took three to rise up, and these three came in and destroyed Jerusalem when they, thought the, when they thought that everything was over, and they were going to be safe because Nero was gone. These guys came in and finished the job. So, uh, Gentry makes the point that if it can be accepted that Revelation was written prior to the time of this destruction, then the enumeration of the kings covers all the imperial, imperial history up until John's time and the events that shortly followed thereafter. Verse 11. And the beast that was and is not even is the eighth and is of the seventh and goeth into perdition. Okay, so we learn the beast was. We learn that the beast was not. We also learn that it is the, an eighth king. We also know that in some sense it belongs to the seven kings and that it goes to destruction. This may represent the remainder of the emperors who will be like the former. And so the thought is that uh, when we get to the eighth down here, that these are like all the seventh. They're carrying forward everything that the Roman Empire was about. And that's how you describe the eighth being part of the seventh. Uh, that's the best explanation that I could find, my own mind not being able to produce one. <coughs> Gentry, he says, this indicates that John is not concerned with the number of the particular emperors arising after the seventh in the Ro- Roman Civil War. Rather, he is interested solely with the fact that there is one coming soon who will, as the empire's trailblazing head, bring back life to the empire. This is a very important sense in which the revival of the empire under Vespasian was a revival under an eighth who was part of the seventh. That's how that's explained, if that makes any sense to you. Uh, The point is that this is the same Roman empire that was brought to life from its own civil war. John's concern is obviously with the uh, contemporaneous events going on and in this case, the Roman Civil War that occurred within the compass of the reign of the seven kings. That's what he's trying to talk about. So, the fact that this revival is of an eighth head indicates the rapid recovery of the beast that apparently died, both specifically Nero and generally Rome itself. There was a fairly quick recovery, and that's why the people stood with amazement and said, we can't believe that it's come back to life. How is this done? How has this happened? Remember, uh, Jerusalem was under attack. Nero kills himself, and suddenly Jerusalem is not under attack because Rome had to uh, uh, work on surviving itself. And so Jerusalem was like, hey, we're okay, we're okay, but that time did not last long. And because it was so short, they're amazed that the spirit of Nero could rise back up and come into play. All right, verses 12 through 14. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet. Now, that's a problematic line right there. They haven't. Re- John says they haven't received a kingdom as yet. He says the ten horns which thou sawest are 10 kings which haven't received no king how do we answer that but receive power as kings one hour with the beast these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast these shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and they are with him are they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful at verses 12 through 14 john turns to a discussion of the ten kings who represented the ten horns of the beast. Now, we visited this topic in our study of chapter 13, and I'm going to reproduce some of our uh, conclusions because of the recapitulation nature of the book of Revelation. John now says that makes our current understanding of Revelation 17, what he says here is very difficult. In verse 10, he was speaking of the Caesars. But here in verse 12, he seems to be speaking of another set or group of kings. And that becomes very difficult for me to understand, maybe for you to understand. Because here at verse 12, he says, Ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority of the beast. Some have thought these ten kings can be likened to the chart on the board. But they had been in power when John wrote. So the kings he's talking about in verse 12 cannot be these kings, if we're gonna be consistent and honest. These guys have been in power, except for perhaps uh, these guys on down. And so what do we say, right? Uh, Some have thought these 10 kings to be 10 empirical, sensorial is what they're called, provinces of Rome that, that Nero gave power to, to go out and act in his name of killing Christians and persecuting Jews. That's, what, that's how it is described, to make war on the Lamb. In the global glossary of Greco-Roman world we read that 10 senatorial provinces in ancient Rome, there are areas that were governed by Roman pro-magistrates. There were 10 senatorial provinces, eight of which were led by ex-praetors and two of which were led by ex-consuls. Wikipedia uh, lists these 10 senatorial provinces as they existed in 14 AD in the following ways. Achaia, Africa, Asia, Creta El Cyrene, Cyprus, Gallia Narbonis, Narbonensis, Hispana, Bateca, uh, Macedonia, Pontus El Bithynia, and Cilicia, and so supporting this view in the Bible, we have um, we have in Acts chapter 18 for existence that Gallio is called the proconsul of Achaia. So we have one of those providences, those senatorial provinces, mentioned in Acts. As being under the control and power of one ga- uh, Gallo Gallio, also in Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas had direct contact with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus was over one of those uh, ten senatorial areas that Nero had empowered to kill uh, the Christians. David S. Clark is helpful in seeing how big the Roman Empire was. He says quote. Uh, we know that Rome embraced at that time the countries of Europe that bordered on the Mediterranean Sea and the northern part of Africa and considerable territory in Asia and also Central Europe. Rome had conquered the world. And this, uh, and then if you go to Wikipedia, which I don't often do, but this was helpful because they give us the modern names of the ten areas that Rome was over, at that time in our age, it's Italy, Achaia, Asia, Syria, Egypt, Africa, Spain, Gaul, Britain, and Germany. So uh, Israel and Palestine belongs to a province of Egypt. So we in Rome was the world at that time. I mean, they were the ones governing what was considered in the ancient world, the world. And we get evidence of that when um, Luke writes in his gospel, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, that Caesar Augustus' decree was that all the world should be taxed. Uh, When he says that, what he means is the whole Roman Empire, even though uh, cosmos is what's written there, uh, you would say, well, all the world certainly couldn't be taxed. The people in Polynesian uh, islands weren't taxed, but we're talking about all the Roman world, which took up the mass of land at that time. Verse 15, John says, And he said unto me, The waters which you saw where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. You know from our Greek studies on these passages where it talks about nations, we're talking about ethnos. We're talking about tribes. We're talking about ethnicities. We are not talking about America and Canada. We are talking about ethnos here. That's the Greek word for those. Uh, And the ten horns which we described as the ten senatorial eras of the Roman Empire, which thou sawest upon the beast, listen to this, these shall hate the whore. Now she's writing on... Uh, the back of the beast for a while. Now suddenly at verse 16, these ten horns that are part of that beast are going to hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. We know from (laughs) so many uh, sources that Israel, particularly Jerusalem, was consumed in this way, uh, burned up Uh, they were desolate, they were naked, they were burned with fire, and Rome ate her flesh, so to speak. Verse 17, for God has put in their hearts, read that line, interestingly enough, God has put in the ten senatorial hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. That's just a reiteration of what we already know. That God gave the beast under the power of the dragon and Satan 42 months to reign absolute hell upon Israel and Jerusalem, which Rome did, and uh, that is when uh, Nero, you know, wrapped people up and lit them up as candles and ate their flesh and threw them to the gladiators, and Christians wiped out in mass. That was during that 42-month period where it says, and God put in their hearts to fulfill his will, which is also to wipe out Jerusalem, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God would be fulfilled. That's pretty heavy, radical stuff, and that's why uh, all the words of the apostles and Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapters 3 and 4, are hang on, hang on, trust, hang on to dear faith, Some of you are going to uh, suffer even unto death. Some of you are going to uh, live for your faith, and you are going to see it tested. Trust in the Lord. Endure to the end. We take those passages a day, and we throw them on each other like water, you know, and they had a real application here. Those Christians were under stuff we cannot imagine, and yeah, I know there's deaths going on in North Korea and in other parts of... uh, you know, wherever, Saudi Arabia and stuff, and some people are getting their throats slit and stuff. But we are talking about, and we've talked about what the history books have said, how Josephus described their murders, pretty horrific. So at verse 15, John is told the meaning of the many waters referred to in verse 1. And the prostitute was seated upon those waters. And as we've already seen, the scope of these many waters could certainly be seen as the valid description of all ethnicities, all peoples, all nations, all Gentiles, really. Water, so far, we've seen in invading armies when, when floods happen. Those are Gentiles coming in to wipe out the earth, Israel. I would suggest that Jerusalem could be portrayed as seated on many waters because of the great and pervasive influence the Jews had in parts of the Roman Empire before uh, its uh, destruction. How so? In all throughout the Roman Empire that I just read, those uh, uh, senatorial provinces, the Jews had um, synagogues. And the extent of their colonization can be seen in the record of the day of Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, we read when the Holy Spirit fell there, and the Jews, remember, were commanded by the law, all male members, 12 and above, to come to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And that's why the city would swell... Uh, with however many hundreds of thousands of people to millions of people stuck within that very small place because they were commanded to come there. So on the day of Pentecost, we read in Acts 2 from Luke, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, is how he put it. So we know that that is how the diaspora, so to speak, of the gospel was taken. They all came as commanded. And on that day, God sends the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. They're converted 3,000 souls from all these different places. And then the uh, uh, high holidays are over. And they get dispersed back out into the world to take what they have believed back out into the Roman Empire. And so we know that the Christian uh, faith um, grew. In verse 16, we're told that the ten horns, the kings, would join the beast in hating the prostitute. And they will make her desolate, naked, and devour her flesh and burn her with fire. Earlier in verse 3, we saw the prostitute sitting on the beast who was full of names, blasphemous names. Now here in verse 16, the same beast has turned on the prostitute with hatred. And that's exactly what happened. Why did... um, We note the prophecy for this event was played out in the Bible way, way, way before this happens in Revelation. The very same thing is told of Israel. If you don't believe me, go to uh, Ezekiel 16, verse 37 through 41. This is the uh, fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., B.C., And here is what Ezekiel says is the reason why Israel has fallen into the hands of Babylon. You ready? Ezekiel says, that God says, I will gather all your lovers from whom you took pleasure. Israel had played the whore. I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. They shall burn your houses with fire, and I will make you cease playing the harlot. This was the charge against Israel all the way throughout the Old Testament. Israel was having relations with other nations that were not her husband. Israel was not faithful to God. God. And so God said, I am, going to, I am going to change you from playing the harlot. So we have it in the Old Testament, this being playing out and happening, actually. Israel is put into bondage because she played the harlot. And here at the end of the narrative in Revelation, Israel is going through the same thing. She is the harlot. She's riding on the back of Rome and Rome turns and destroys her, which is exactly what happened. So what is the significance of of verse 16, then, in light of Jerusalem's downfall of 70 A.D.? Let's read it. And the ten horns, which we described as the ten senatorial areas of the Roman Empire, which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore Israel, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Obviously, we're talking about Rome the beast turning on the whore Israel and destroying her and making her desolate. It's not a coincidence that the word desolate is used here in Revelation. It was used in Revelation. It will be used in Revelation chapter 18, verses 17 and 19. It was used in Daniel 9:27. It is used by Jesus himself in describing what is coming to Jerusalem before he died. The abomination of desolation is coming upon you. Desolate is a, is a word that is used through all of these places to show a consistency and to give us a timestamp stamp of when these things were going to happen. Secondly, we do know from accounts provided by Josephus and Tacitus that a number of kings from surrounding provinces joined Vespasian and Titus in, Romans, in the Rome's war against uh, Israel in 67 to 70. So when it says the ten horns turned on the whore, we're talking about the sin senatorial provinces turning on her. And we know from the uh, uh, secular record, Josephus and Tacitus, that other kings joined in that war. So we have a fulfillment there. Then at the end of July 70 AD, on the exact same day uh, that Jerusalem was burned in 586 BC, let me repeat it. In 7th July of 70 AD, on the exact same day that Jerusalem was burned in 586 BC, the second temple was burned to the ground. On the exact same day, on the exact same day, some almost 600 years later. Okay, there is a reason for all this. It's typed and pictured in the Old Testament. It's foretold as coming again in the New Testament. And that's why John and Jesus said, I'm here to save you. Believe on me because the axe is laid at the the tree and it's coming down and you're going to be part of it. And read the book of Revelation that I'm going to give John because he's going to describe it to you. And it's going to be addressed to the seven churches there in Asia. They're going to see it and they're going to believe it and they're going to act accordingly. Josephus said that from a distance, the entire city of Jerusalem appeared to be on fire. In fact, during August and September of 70 AD, the rest of the city was set on fire fire, and then leveled to the ground. We'll talk more about that imagery when we get to chapter 18. Suffice it to say that all the elements necessary for these prophecies to be fulfilled uh, were there. Quickly, here are some of the key events that led up to the beast turning on the whore. And they're kind of collect on each other, but they're uh, taken from the historical record. First, there was a Jewish revolt in the fall of 66 AD when zealots and revolutionaries against Rome tried to take control of the Jewish temple. Now, remember, if we've learned anything from going verse by verse in the New Testament, Rome wants peace. Damn it! These Jews keep causing trouble in the city of peace, keep it peaceful. And they couldn't do it. Well, the zealots and revolutionaries who were against Rome caused an uproar, all right? Then the Jewish-Roman war begins in October with the revolt at Caesarea due to a group of Greeks sacrificing birds in front of a local seminar, a synagogue, <laughs> an S-seminar. The forum was going on, no, I'm just kidding. The revolt occurred because the Jews were frustrated that the Roman garrison didn't stop those Greeks from offering pagan sacrifice. So we see more boiling up. The high priest successfully led a massacre of a Roman garrison stationed in Jerusalem. That happened later. Then the Romans in Caesarea slaughtered 20,000 Jews. 20,000. And this this is well before Jerusalem gets hit. So, you know, we have a Roman garrison in Caesarea killing 20,000 Jews. We lost 3,000 on um, September 11th. That's huge, and it was horrific, changed everything. Just 20,000 wiped out of their own kind. Then about 13,000 more Jews were put to death in Damascus, Syria, all leading up to the grand culmination of scorched earth of the entire country. This was just the beginning of the carnage after... Uh, a less successful of attack on Galilee and Jerusalem by Gallus. Gallus, I don't know how to say his name. He was the Roman governor of Syria, one of the ten senatorial provinces. Nero declared war on Israel in February 67 AD, dispatching Vespasian and his general with triple the forces uh, initially assigned to t- take it over. The heat is coming up. Under whose hand? Nero, the beast, 666. Figure it out. This is his name says the Hebrew gematria. And verse 18 gives us even more uh, specific description of the whore saying, and the woman which thou sawest is that great city, the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now futurists would say, yep, Israel is still reigning over the kings of the earth. It's meaning in the future. It's going to happen now. They control everything. Our president is in Israel's pocket. That may be true, but it was definitely true then. But it doesn't seem like it, right? How could Israel reign over the kings of the earth at that time, you know? Well, again, the whore, the evil woman who persecutes the bride is identified as the great city and is said to have domination over the kings of the, of the earth, the land. Uh, there's a lot of great cities throughout this world How could we suppose at this time that Jerusalem had that power? Revelation 11.8, the name Great City, is given to Jerusalem. So here's a biblical reference. Great City, Revelation 11.8, given to Jerusalem. Here in chapter 17, the Great City, called the Whore of Babylon, she is that Great City. I think there's a parallel. The Great City is then called Babylon the Great on at least seven occasions in the book of Revelation. Babylon the Great. Now... To the difference, even to preterists, some maintain that the great city, here comes a difference of opinion, between, some say the great city is Rome, some say the great city is Jerusalem. Steve Gregg notes that this verse, quote, is considered most definitive in the recognition of Rome as the harlot city. He's a preterist, full preterist. He says, Rome is the harlot city. Those who agree with him agree. He adds, if no other data were given in Revelation for the identification of the city, no one would question that this is Rome, end quote. So there's a debate within our own house if you're a a fulfillment person. Unfortunately for Steve Gregg, there's a wealth of data that suggests he's incorrect. Uh, David Chilton, who's the kind of bigwig of all preterism, he said, if the great city is Jerusalem... How could it be said to wield this kind of worldwide political power? How would little Jerusalem there, being attacked by Rome now, how would it be the great city that wields this power, that has power over the kings? Stay with me. The answer is that Revelation is not a book about political power, and it never has been. The book of Revelation is about covenant. It's about the covenant people. Now you think about this back in that day on earth, where was god 's covenant people where were, uh, were God 's covenant people established, where his house was established on 'm not Moriah in Jerusalem they had they were the kings of the covenantal world right that 's how to see it, not politically, even though it says kings there it 's talking about covenantally so she did possess a kingdom which was above all the kingdoms of the world. She had covenantal priority over all the kingdoms of the earth. The Jews were God's chosen people. That's how to understand that. The Book of Lamentations, written shortly after Jerusalem fell the first time in 586 BC, begins this way quote, How lonely sits the city that was full of people, who like a widow has she become, who was great among the nations she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. And that's what we're talking about. Covenantially, even though Egypt uh, was a predecessor of, of uh, Jerusalem by far, covenantially, she was the princess. And yet then she was sold into slavery in 586 BC. Interestingly, we'll see in our study of chapter 18, the great city in John's day says in, uh, ch- in verse 7 of that chapter, chapter 18, it will say, we're going to read, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Also, when Jeremiah prophesied of Jerusalem's soon coming destruction in his day, going back in his day, he wrote, And many nations will pass by this city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt with this great city? We're talking about Jerusalem. And they will answer, because they have forgotten the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. That's that prostitution that Israel had with pagan nations and, and pagan gods. Adam Marshak adds, Jerusalem was great in the political sense as well, however. Take note of Josephus' description of Jerusalem in his introduction to the war of the Jews. Quote, It had so come to pass that our city Jerusalem had arrived at a higher degree of felicity than any other city under the Roman government, and yet at last fell into the source of calamities again. Showing the the Old Testament fulfilled again. And then Ken Gentry says in his book, listen to this, what he writes, it's interesting. Jerusalem housed a temple that, according to Tacitus quote, was famous beyond all other works of men. Another Roman historian, Pliny, said of Jerusalem that it was, quote, by far the most famous city of the ancient Orient. According to Josephus, a certain Agatharchides spoke of Jerusalem this way, quote, there are are a people called Jews who dwell in a city the strongest of all other cities, which the inhabitants call Jerusalem. Appian called it, quote, the great city Jerusalem. More importantly, however, is the covenantal significance of Jerusalem. The obvious role of Jerusalem in the history of the covenant should merit its such greatness. Josephus sadly extols Jerusalem lost glory after its destruction, saying, this was the end which Jerusalem came to be, the madness of those that were for innovations a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind that's in wars and there is not and where is not that great city the metropolis of the jewish nation which was fortified by so many walls around it which had so many fortresses and large towers to defend it which could hardly contain the instruments prepared for war and which had so many tens of thousands to fight over it where is the city that is believed to have God Himself inhabiting therein? It is now demolished to its very foundations. End quote. Josephus, War 7:87. This book is about it. That's what the Revelation is. It's coming. You can change now, but it's coming. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! How often I would have gathered you as chicks under her wings, but you would not. How can you escape the judgment of Gehenna that is going to come upon you? How can you escape it? And then Jesus gives his life, ascends, and says, I'm coming back. And when I do, this whole place is going down. And it did. For me, here at the conclusion of Revelation 17, it seems clear that the whore uh, is definitely representing the great city uh, and her interaction with the beast, Rome, and how the beast turns on her. Ultimately, the beast wipes her out, and Jerusalem is utterly, completely leveled, as Jesus promised it would be in Matthew 23. Not one stone will remain upon another. Which also makes me wonder why we go to the Wailing Wall and say this is this is uh, this is where it, I mean, this is the only thing we have left of the temple. No, I don't believe it for a second. I think that was part of another edifice that was built at another time. I do not believe one stone of that temple laid upon another. And so we have what now I would suggest is a fabricated uh, Israel. They don't have their genealogy. They don't have their tribes. They don't know where they come from. They have a land that keeps working governmentally with our, with our presidents, etc. It's just a show. That stuff is done. Now there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, male and female bond and free. We are all one in Christ, and all of us come to Christ by faith and God's grace. There is no more of this, and there's no more of this waiting to happen. It's done. Questions, comments, insights, retorts, postulations, exhortations, Hi, Sean. Hi. Um, I guess you kind of answered my question at the end. No Jew, Gentile, Greek, male or female, all unlike in Christ. But what are the Jews doing today? Just playing church, playing religion? I mean, I'm sure they're sincere in the heart, but what are, what's the promises for them today? Let me, ask, let me ask that question of you. Okay. Are they able to offer animal sacrifice, which was key to their religion? No, because Christ already came. How long has it been since they've offered animal sacrifice? Probably thousands of years. I don't know. They don't even follow their own faith. So, I mean, just in terms of their own key to their own faith, that's not even followed. Um, then they don't even know who's, what, who's who. So who are Jews? And there's that whole debate. Who really are the Jews? So I don't know the answer to it except that God loves them and is calling to them just like he's calling to you and me. And he wants them to be his children by faith on his son. And that's what I would say they're doing today. They are either rejecting him or they're receiving him.
1: Cool. Amen. Thank you, you bro. Praise God.
0: Praise God. Whoa. All right. You're still awake?
1: Hi, Sean. I- I'm Parrish. Um, do you see any kind of a growing movement? Uh, in the uh, on the on the preterist side uh, as far as its popularity I just wish what you are teaching here which is analytical which is historical which can be verified through historical text and in the biblical text I go to 99% of the churches here and it's just a it's just a streamlined version of what people have been taught through traditions I believe Uh, Darby, yeah. starting in the late 1800s with Darby. Do you see, I mean, you you were talking earlier about how you get a kind of a wider perspective of the spiritual uh, church. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any that's kind of teaching what you're teaching, coming to this more practical uh, teaching that you shared with us today?
0: What's interesting is of course, I am not the author of this, and, and we can show you the quotes from the early church fathers who said the destruction of Jerusalem was Jesus' advent. So it's nothing new to me, but uh, there are a lot of big, bigger, smarter names out there that teach this uh, and um, who can really articulate it well, and they understand how it is the end of all the stuff that is going on is, is stuff we just do out of excitement and out of hope. When Darby and Schofield got together and created that movement, and, and frankly, the guy who taught me, Chuck Smith, jumped onto that bandwagon. The hippies loved the idea of the world ending and, uh, and really propagated that thing. It t- it just, I mean, it took hold before that, but it's always been heavy in these, since the 1800s, I guess. And uh, I think it's just going to take time. Your, final, your other question, was, Parrish, I think there are more and more people coming around to it more and more discussions talking about, this is what the Bible says, you know? So I hope that's true because it does liberate you. Yeah. Yeah. Great question, comment. Anything else? All right. Let's pray. Lord, uh, all I can say honestly before you is I hope we're right. Uh, If we're not, Take us up when you come back. <laughs> we want what's true. and But, you know, your word, we trust it. We trust what you said when you walked the earth. We trust trust what your apostles said, that you were coming back in a short time. And we trust that it was applied to those people who rejected you, rejected your law, and you came back with reward, reward for your bride and with punishment and judgment for those who had the law, had the prophets, and put their Messiah to death. Lord, um, we pray that this information, as we said when we walked in, won't alter the way we live our lives, that we do prepare to constantly meet you. We do walk in faith. We do share you as the only solution. Uh, to sin and to reconciliation to, uh, to God. And we, we don't use this as liberty to just throw our hands up and say, done. But we use it as a license to grow more in love and to realize that our forefathers of the faith, they finished all this stuff. And the Christians who walked before us, they, they bore the burden uh, of real faith walking. And now we do the same and we pray your strength. We pray that we will look to your son, and we will worship and honor and glorify him in your name and all that we do. We pray for those who are on our list, and, and for uh, our children and grandchildren. We pray for their direction and purpose. We pray for John Taylor, who is a quadriplegic from breaking his neck and his family. And we pray that you'll help the bed sores that he is dealing with. We pray for Andy Poland's family, Lori, and their kids at the loss of that brother. And uh, we pray that uh, you will be merciful to them and that you will cause your spirit to cause others to be kind and loving. We uh, always pray for our sister Lisa and that she will continue and uh, bless parish who cares for for her. We pray for Sandy Wiley for healing. We uh, pray for uh, the many names, Liz and Diana and all the other names that are not on this list, that are in our hearts, we know the people who are in need, and, uh, and they're in our hearts, Lord. We worry about them. We're concerned about our children and grandchildren, and we know um, the difficulties in, in our neighbors' lives and in our own hearts, and we just pray to you now that you will fulfill us, you'll strengthen us, you'll encourage us to walk the Christian walk to be a light, a city set on a hill that cannot be hid, and uh, that you will encourage us through your spirit to be better Christians, to be more loving, and to uh, move forward in our faith. Pray also for Mary and, and her uh, hip, and that the doctors will be able to fix that, and um, everything else that we stand in need of, Lord, we place at your feet. Pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Oh, Christ is the end.